welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning into episode 42. Um, so much to talk about this week. Great guests lined up. Uh, I'm really excited to enter some new territory and also to revisit some previous territory that we've covered because there are important developments and I want to keep everybody as up to date as possible. Um, so I'm lucky to have an expert with me this morning. But before I turn to that, let me just do my pitch for Counterpunch, the print magazine. Um, it's one of those things that really keeps Counterpunch going. These subscriptions are, I think, a, a, a really good way of helping to donate to Counterpunch, to keep Counterpunch going, and quite frankly, to keep print media going because that is a dying uh, and somewhat archaic uh, form of media. But I I like it. I appreciate print. I appreciate the magazine, the artwork, the columns. Um, I love getting it. So I would urge people to consider getting that subscription. It's not a huge expenditure in the grand scheme of things. And it'll also make you feel good knowing that you're contributing to Counterpunch. Also, of course, Counterpunch Radio. Uh, spread it around to your friends your family via email, Facebook, Twitter, what, whatever your chosen method of dissemination is. Give us positive reviews on the iTunes store. It's a great way to bring this show to more people, help us boost the popularity, boost us up the recommendation charts. Um, it's a good way. It's a good way to help us do what we do. Um, anyway, let me turn to my guest this week. Uh, she is returning for her second appearance. Dare I say friend of the show, Laura Carlson. <laughs> of course. She is the director of the Americas program at the Center for International Policy. The website, very important resource, CIPAmericas.org. Also on Twitter at CIPAmericas. Laura Carlson, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks, Eric, for the invitation. Um, so I really wanted to have you back on to kind of follow up on some of the things we talked about now. It would have been nice if in prep in preparation for this episode, I would have looked back and seen what episode you were on, but it was somewhere in the 20s. So people who uh, would like to go back and listen to our previous conversation, please do that. Uh, it was a wealth of information. Laura is, I think, on the forefront of a lot of these key issues in Latin America. So, Laura, um, thanks for coming back. And I want to start with kind of picking up on one of the themes of our previous conversation, that having to do with these disappearances that we've seen in Mexico. Obviously, the high-profile one in 2014, the Ayotzinapa disappearances. But even recently, we've seen yet again almost a replay of the same kind of situation. So tell us what's happening in Guerrero State, what we know generally about this phenomenon and what similarities we see between what's happening now and what happened two years ago. Well, it's, it's sadly a very frequent occurrence that there are disappearances in the state of Guerrero in particular. Just recently, last week, there was a demonstration. The government cracked down, and the families are claiming that approximately seven people are still disappeared after that crackdown. The government says they're in custody, but unless they're presented, unless their families know where they are, they're considered forcibly disappeared. Now, forcibly means that the state is involved. And in probably the majority, although since there are no investigations hardly, uh, we don't know, but probably the majority of these do qualify as forced disappearances because some members of the state, whether it's police or army in some cases, are involved in the disappearance. 
Beyond that, there's also these smaller disappearances that oftentimes don't even make the headlines or the news where people are taken one by one. So they, they've added up to a huge number of people that are disappeared in the state of Guerrero and all over the country. What's interesting about this is a couple of things. First of all, why are people dis being disappeared? Uh, that has to do with uh, organized crime. And, of course, the government blames it all on organized crime. And occasionally when they can't get around it, they say, well, yeah, there was a couple of, like, bad apples in the government, like the mayor of, of uh, Iguala, who's accused of being a member of organized crime and responsible for the disappearance of the students, or certain other usually lower-level government officials that are in cahoots with organized crime and carrying out these, these crimes. However, it's much, much deeper than that. As we discovered in the Ayotzinapa case, and it's usually the case in, in the other instances of forced disappearances, it goes to all levels of government and generally has to do with, in the state of Guerrero, this extremely lucrative heroin trade that's going on. The area of Ayotz where Ayotzinapa is, the area where Chilpancingo is, where the most recent disappearances took place, is right around uh, where the poppy producing uh, area is in the highlands of the state of Guerrero. And the poppy is produced there and it's either set in the form of opium paste or sometimes processed a bit more straight through the major connection is is Chicago. So there's a lot of money going through there. What's happened in the United States is that, and I'm sure many of our listeners know uh, this story because it's it's been causing, unfortunately, a lot of deaths lately, is that there's these opioids on the market because of legal prescriptions. They're overprescribed. They're illegally obtained. People become hooked. Later, there's a restriction of, of access to them or the cost becomes prohibitive to addicts and so they turn from the opioids to heroin itself and this has greatly expanded the heroin market in the United States thanks to the pharmaceuticals and the overprescription of these opioids and their availability in the United States and Mexico has become the supplier. Mexico used to supply a very crude form of heroin and and the dealers now have become more sophisticated they're supplying a higher grade heroin it's become it's become a drug of choice in many communities in the United States uh, and it's become a huge business down here so as the stakes get higher with more income coming from the opium trade uh, and more production coming out of this region of well, uh, the violence gets higher, too, for who controls that trade and who benefits from it. Yeah, that's right. And we've seen a number of examples where it's sort of like this sort of confluence between these economic factors and the disappearances. And it's not just in the illicit drug trade, although that's an important one. But I think last time we spoke, Laura, you, we were talking a little bit about this privatization push in the fields of energy and potentially also fracking as well. And where, you know, uh, you know, the, the people basically get in in the way of the interests of these large multinational corporations that want to make billions of dollars in this form of extraction. 
That's right. And several of the articles on this most recent Chilpancingo disappearances and the crackdown on the protesters there have noted uh, that this is also very close to one of the largest gold mines in in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's there's been uh, one not very long ago. The director of the manager, I think, or uh, an assistant manager of this gold mine came out. There was a uh, heist of a truckload of gold, you know, that had recently been mined. And his first statement to the press was, you know, we don't really know what happened. We've always gotten along well with organized crime. <laughs> so people <laughs> were like, what did he just say? Yeah. But of course, that's the way it works. Sure. Everybody makes their deals. So when they say that it's a few bad apples, you know, it's completely off base. Everybody's making their deals. I remember once, and this concludes the United States is supposedly down here with now $3 billion and the Merida Initiative fighting organized crime. If you look at the strategy and you look at the results of the strategy, what you see is that there's no, re- there's no reduction in, in flows of illicit prohibited drugs. Uh, there's changes. You know, you might have one cartel loses, another cartel gains. Uh, you'll have shifts in terms of what drugs with kind of uh, like – Cocaine's gone down, heroin's gone up. You find all these over time, but what you don't see is any progress whatsoever in real terms. And I remember once I was interviewing an expert in in this area in particular. In fact, he just published a book on the heroin route. And he said, well, what's it called? It's called the Drug Enforcement Administration. And that's what they do. They administer flows of illegal drugs. You know, they push them the way, the way they want them. And when you look at it, that's really what's going on here. Uh, it's a farce. The war on drugs is a farce. It's a farce to say that either the Mexican government or the U.S. government are actually combating drug cartels. Sometimes they're, they're, they're fighting against one and they end up benefiting another one. Uh, but in terms of eliminate the, in eliminating them, the very lack of progress, the lack of results in this area is evidence that that's not really what they're trying to do. That's right. And you mentioned the Merida Initiative, which I think is important. And uh, I, I do want to focus a bit on Mexico, but let me broaden it out a little bit, because what the Merida Initiative, from my perspective, really is, it's not actually about combating organized crime. What it is really about is militarizing the state, militarizing the police, giving them the literally the weapons, the body armor, all of the, you know, the the tools, because of course that enriches our own in the US, the military industrial complex, all of these corporations that make the weapons, that make the body armor, that provide the training, all of the consulting, the private contractors. There's billions of dollars invested in this industry of militarization and we take that further beyond Mexico and beyond the Merida initiative and we see similarly uh, Obama's so-called CARSI, the Central American version of basically the same thing which is arming, you know, the Honduran state which is carrying out tremendous repression, arming the the police in, in Guatemala and El Salvador and all of these places. This is really what the United States is doing. It's not about combating organized crime it's about enriching and militarizing the state 
It's very important to look at that broader picture. I just got back from a month on the road with the Caravan for Peace, Life, and Justice. This was a caravan that set off from Tegucigalpa in Honduras and went through El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico, and the United States and ended up in New York City for the UN Special Session on Drugs. The idea was to bring the message that this war on drugs attitude to confront, supposedly, because again, it's a hypocritical war, to confront the drug cartels in a military manner has not worked. And instead, what's happening is in many cases, those guns are being turned against the people who are, with all justification, defending their lands and territories, oftentimes from the incursions of transnational corporations. So we start off in Tegucigalpa, and one of the people who helped organize this caravan was Berta Cáceres. Berta Cáceres was an environmental feminist and anti-imperialist leader, leader in Honduras. Her organization, COPIN, was one of the strongest organizations of the Lenca indigenous people, and they were involved in, in a fight to save a river from a hydroelectric plant that was going to block the flow of the, of the river, and she's been involved in this fight for a long time, and had actually been able to stave off this project and keep the river flowing freely for many, many years. She's a very effective organizer. So when she heard about the initiative of the caravan, she immediately said, you know, we want to be a part of this, and we'll help you organize the leg of it that goes through Honduras. And she was one of the major partners in organizing the caravan. Then on March 3rd, she was asleep in her house in La Esperanza in Lenca territory in Honduras. And a masked mass gunman came into the house and assassinated her. It was a tremendous loss for the movement. She was known throughout the world. She won the Goldman Environmental Prize for defense of the river and of Lenca territory. Um, and at the same time, a Mexican who was working with her was also shot and wounded. Um, for the caravan then, when we got there, we ended up going to Copin, her organization. Uh, and we found that they're still strong. Her daughters, in many ways, have taken up the fight. But this is directly, the reason she was supporting the caravan is because she knew that it was directly related to this war on drugs. They've had uh, members of their organization before her who have been assassinated. Uh, the Honduran army is defending the company, as are the police, backing up the private security forces of the company. And now, in fact, that they say they have arrested some of the uh, people responsible for her murder, it turns out that they have close links as both active and retired military members, as well as close links to the to the company that was trying to that still continues to try to put this this hydroelectric dam that would block the river and that would uh, severely affect the Lenca traditional lands and that's what we're seeing in countries all over now the Central America regional initiative began and it basically does the same thing as the Merida initiative yep. and now you have the Alliance for Prosperity in $750 million a year, way more money than they've given to Central American countries. And this is Honduras, the, what they call the Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. 
supposedly for development and security. And a lot of that is going to the drug war. A lot of that is going to support the kinds of mega projects that ended up with the assassination of Berta Cáceres. Yeah, that's right. And just to uh, finish up on that point, you know, um, I wrote about this about a year ago. I think it was on the uh, it was on the anniversary of the coup, the two thousand nine coup. So I guess it was like in June. Um, um, and remember, of course, that that coup was perhaps most specifically orchestrated and or provided political cover by Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is directly implicated in really everything that's happened in Honduras since that time. And that includes not just the killing of, uh, of Berta Cáceres. It also includes the continued oppression of the indigenous communities, especially those that are on the Caribbean shore area of Honduras because that area is prized real estate for massive hotel corporations who want to build resorts, who want to develop that area. And of course, when we say develop, the corollary being the displacement of the indigenous communities that live there and have, you know, from from time immemorial. And so there's a lot of these kinds of, uh, of, um, you know, uh, initiatives by the right-wing uh, Honduran government that they want to purge the country of people like Caceres and other indigenous rights and, and, and other activist groups. And that is all being done with money and political backing from the United States. That's right. Honduras now has one of the worst human rights records in the world against journalists. They've been assassinating journalists. They just uh, shot shot one. I mean, we don't know still who did it, but one a, a very prominent journalist that we met with on the caravan. On the caravan, we also went through La Ceiba, which is the territory you're talking about, where the Garifuna people are very organized in in keeping their land. And it's not only they're fighting not only against mega projects, which is a big part of it, but also it's a drug corridor. Because what's happened is that so Hillary Clinton is the secretary of state. I remember this very clearly because I covered it on a day to day basis. And there was still sort of a honeymoon period there for yep. uh, for Obama's presidency. People were thinking he'd gone to the summit of the Americas. He'd said, we're going to have relationships that are built on mutual respect. It's going to be a different ballgame, basically. And many people believed it. There was a lot of hope there so so the coup happens and people are rather stunned thinking a coup in the 21st century and we thought we were over this somehow but of course we never seem to be over authoritarian attempts to take power um there's a military coup and the united states condemns it but you can already from the very beginning see because they're not calling it a military coup. A military coup would have cut off all aid. So to make a long story short, what she did is she engineered elections without restoring constitutional order. That is to say, without bringing back the elected president who'd been kidnapped in his pajamas in the, in the course of this military coup. So that means that there's elections held by a coup government. They're pro-coup forces that are elected in those elections. And from there on in, we see the steady deterioration 
of any kind of institutional order in Honduras. And that's why the country has become a major drug trafficking center. It's become the worst violator of human rights. And it's become one of the places that has the highest homicide rate in the world as well. And you know what else? And you know what else it's become? It's become the focal point of U.S. military strategy for the region. U.S. military forces are now regularly being deployed in Honduras under all sorts of pretexts, including, I remember uh, recently, I guess it was like a year and a half ago now uh, to, you know, preemptive measure around a hurricane. But of course, those Marines never left, you know, or the, the, the hardware they brought with them never left. A lot of them now uh, private military contractors who are more or less an adjunct of the military anyway, yeah. who work with the, 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 the government police forces, local police forces. There's all sorts of these military ties as well. And in many ways, the, the coup against Zelaya provided sort of this full foothold for the U.S. military forces for the entire region. That's right. The people there talk about uh, multiple bases, especially there on the Atlantic coast. When they say bases, you're talking about these smaller um, smaller groups of military. It's not like a formal base, which they do have as well. You know what well. they call them? They, In order to get around saying that the U.S. has military bases, they call them joint security facilities, forward operating yeah. facilities, or any of these other ridiculous terms to basically anything but a base. Yeah, exactly. And, and yet there they are. And they're working with the Honduran government closely, despite the fact that it's a government that should never be allowed to receive a single penny in U.S. aid because of the degree of corruption and abuse that takes place within that government. And in fact, there's, there's been a series and one most recent of letters from members of Congress saying suspend all aid to Honduras. We cannot, this is not a worthy partner for the United States government. And it's clear that they, they are absolutely right in that. So the military, so yeah, Honduras has been converted and is being converted into sort of a beachhead for a recovery of U.S. hegemony exactly. in the region yep. after so many, you know, after seeing a kind of a push toward center left governments, uh, there, there's that going on, and then there's also it. It serves to protect the interests of transnationals that are going after the natural resources in the region. That's absolutely right. And and again, I mean, the reason I bring that up in the context of Hillary Clinton is because none of this would be possible without Hillary Clinton. I think you know if you if you examine the record, and I am. Uh, well known as uh, reviling Obama, you know, top to bottom in, in basically every way. But if you examine the historical record, it seems pretty clear that Obama was much less comfortable himself with what was happening in Honduras than Hillary Clinton was, because in fact, Hillary Clinton basically deployed one of her main uh, Washington lobbyists, Lonnie Davis, along with a couple of others who are Beltway insiders, to basically drum up political support to provide cover for the coup. And this was literally done with uh, handshake deals all over Capitol Hill. So all of these uh, legislators here in the United States would, mm, let's, if not totally support it, at least not kick up too much of a fuss. So in many ways, 2009 was Clinton's coup in Honduras. Yes, and that's been proven historically. Uh, Tom Shannon went in and did the finessing at the end so that the elections would be held and even eventually recognized by the Organization of American States after several months. 
and Mel Zelaya would never be allowed to return as the legally elected president of his own country. Uh, and this, this, as I say, had tremendously negative impact on, on the nation, and it set a terrible precedent that you could actually get away with a coup. And Hillary Clinton was much stronger in that. She was the architect of that. Yeah. And, and while Obama was making much stronger statements against the coup, this is what she was doing first behind the scenes, and then she admits it. In her autobiography, she says, and I talked to the Mexican government, because the Mexican government traditionally is, you know, the kind of the, the, the supports U.S. policy on the regional level. And she orchestrated with the Mexican representative, foreign minister, uh, and, says, and says specifically, and we figured out a strategy to move Honduras to elections without restoring constitutional order. She didn't say it like that. Uh, and then later, when people picked up on that phrase, when the pa paperback version of her autobiography came out, it had been stricken from the book. Yeah, well, unfortunately for Hillary, this is all very well known publicly. Um, you know, there's been pieces written about that. And, you know, mine was just in reference to other pieces that have also, you know, been written about it as well. So I think it's it's pretty well known now. And it's connected to a lot of the nefarious things that are happening in the region all over. But before we run out of time, Laura, I do want to come back to Mexico, if we could, and, and, and talk a little bit about the 2014 uh, Ayotzinapa case. That's what we focused on really a lot of our discussion last time you were on the program. And since that point, um, actually earlier this year, um, and, and up until just a few days ago, we've had developments in this ongoing investigation. And last time we spoke, we were hoping that the investigation was going to really reveal a lot of important information. And now it turns out uh, it's going nowhere. And it seems that they're packing up and basically leaving this investigation un unresolved. Um, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which had sponsored this investigation, and they've released a statement basically saying they can't conduct their investigation because of obstacles and non-compliance and non-cooperation of the Mexican government. So tell us a little bit about that and, and what you know and what the implications of this are. Several weeks ago, I went to the presentation of the second and final report of the interdisciplinary group of independent experts. These are the highly qualified individuals that were sent by the Inter-American Commission to, on human rights to carry out this investigation. Uh, the place was packed. There's a high level of interest here in Mexico in the case, as there is internationally. And they presented about three-hour exposition of their findings. Uh, it was a very, uh, it was kind of a sad occasion in many ways because what they said is they, they did present a tremendous amount of information, a lot of very technical information, a lot of information that never would have come out if people had been forced to just swallow the official version, which turned out to be a lie. However, they were unable to resolve the case, which means finding the 43 disappeared students and, and knowing for certain what happened on the night of September 26th, 
precisely because of the obstruction of the Mexican government. The reason that the case, the cases were closed, but the reason that the commission, this group of experts, had to finish up its work and pack up and leave the country is that they can only stay if they're invited by the Mexican government. There was so much public pressure after they finished their first mandate that it was extended, and now they finished the second one in the midst of an organized smear campaign that has even gotten to a personal level of attacking each individual on this group of experts in the press and attacking their findings despite the fact that they're completely documented scientifically. Their findings are that the government version, that the students were taken by corrupt police, handed over to organized crime and burned at the dump in Kokula is entirely and totally impossible physically to have burned 43 bodies so completely that they can't be identified at this place, which means that they lied. Uh, they also, and one of the two interesting things are, first of all, that they came up with a video that some journalists had taken of how uh, the government went to to find bodies. Their version was that they were supposedly, after they were burned at the dump, their ashes were placed in plastic bags. They were taken to a nearby river and dumped in the river. So they came out. They were in they were in trouble. The government version was in trouble because they were unable to show that there was any evidence whatsoever of any students at the dump. They were claiming that they were burned out. So they go to the river and they find these plastic bags and they come out and they're able to identify the bones of one student. Then this video comes out where the day before the government officials are down by this river and they're seemingly walking around, um, you know, messing with bones and plastic bags. But the thing about this video is that it was not reported. So, of course, the suspicion was that the day before the day they officially announced that they're finding these bones, they went down and planted them there. Um, and the government has come out and said, no, that's not what happened. But they're saying, then why didn't you put this previous, you know, this previous visit to the river into the file on the case? Then the other thing that happened is that there's this mysterious fifth bus. So the fifth bus is a bus that the students had also taken. You know, the students went down and they take buses to use for their transportation purposes, um, and this had been a common practice, and this is and this is when the they were attacked on this night. Um, and so the fifth bus was not reported. Uh, it was, and yet it was carefully documented that it existed and that there were students in it. And the hypothesis there is that this fifth bus was actually the cause. In, it could be the possible cause of the attack on the students this night uh, because it was loaded with, with either heroin or with cash coming back from the heroin trade. And the fact that it was completely omitted from the official report on the case that is, you know, mountains of paperwork makes it, it, makes it very suspicious you know, what was this fifth bus? Why didn't the government want to mention it? Uh, why, why, why was this fifth bus at the scene of the crime escorted by the federal police away from the crime scene? 
and allowed to continue? You know, there's all these questions. So they've raised a bunch of questions. It's our responsibility as Mexican society and as an international community now to follow up on them because the commission said, you know, even if the government were somehow forced to tell us that we could stay here, if we're not getting any cooperation, there's really no point. And they went through this long list of how the government didn't turn over the information that they asked for, how the army which is now is now very clear that they were also involved that they're they're talking about a coordinated action between all levels of government the night of the disappearance of the 43 students and of course this also is contradictory to the version that well there was a couple bad people in in local government it's systematic it's all levels of government there was clearly a cover up it's a huge case and now we don't know you know, where it's going to go. It really will take a lot of pressure from from Mexican society and from international society that's been following the case closely to keep the pressure on the government to resolve some of these questions now that the commission has been forced to leave. Yeah, exactly. And just to kind of highlight the point that you just made about the potential motives here, even one of the one of the members of the panel uh, has basically come out publicly saying that, um, and I guess the phrase she used was a probable link, but you know, I, I don't know whether I don't know whether there's that much doubt about it. Namely, a probable link between what happened to the students and this heroin drug route that we were talking about earlier going from Guerrero State in Mexico all the way up to Chicago and this is basically from from what it seems like this is one of the main arteries for the cartels for the organized crime world to bring these drugs into the United States now of course it goes without saying you're talking billions of dollars annually in terms of revenue from that so it's not a it's not much of a stretch to see the connection between getting rid of these you know political agitators and this billion dollar drug trade that as we know both the cartels and the government working hand and in glove are benefiting from. Yeah, there are too many questions and irregularities or whatever you want to call them involving this fifth bus for it to be ignored. And the course the with the drug trade and the stakes being as high as you mentioned, uh there's every reason for a cover up to take place. For example, when they did finally say, "Hey, there's a fifth bus here that you didn't even report what's going on, guys." Then finally, with a lot of pressure, the government presented a bus uh, and said, they said, we really need to, you know, we really need to investigate physically this fifth bus. We've got an expert here. And so the government said, okay, here it is. And they investigated the bus and it was not the same bus. The government presented a fake bus for them to, to, to examine in terms of the physical evidence and things just went from there to worse. So when they noticed, of course, that there was like the, that they were doing everything possible 
to to block any real investigation of this fifth bus. It's when it became clear that something something very serious was going on there. Um, it's not clear how how we'll be able to to push forward with that investigation. Of course, they've, they've destroyed much of the evidence. It turns out that the evidence that they're using to convict some of the people who've been arrested in the case, most of it is based on torture. There was clear evidence of torture in the case of the major witnesses for the government regarding the participation of organized crime and what happened to the students. So in a technical sense, most of those confessions and most of that evidence would have to be thrown out of court. In many ways, there's tons of information on this case, and yet we're sort of still at the starting block in terms of understanding or especially legally prosecuting people for the forced disappearances, and the students are still disappeared. And and finally, um, before we before we go here, I, I do want to touch on one other aspect of all of this at the largest level. That has to do with the Mexican government, the the, the Peña Nieto government, basically in in many ways being a a creation of, if not directly, at the very least in a sort of a tangential way, of the United States, essentially like a proxy because, you know, we had this very interesting story of this hacker Andres Sepulveda, who's now gone public, uh, this Colombian hacker gone public, basically saying that he stole the election using, you know, using computer hacking technology, stole the election for Peña Nieto and that he was working with this very well-known infant if you you know if you want to call him that political power broker in Miami Juan Jose Rendon who's basically connected to all the right wing movements all over Latin America so the Peña Nieto government is only even in place because of the illegal activity that at its root is directed out of the United States there's yet there's so much manipulation of the elections now and much of it does come from the United States and there's so much manipulation from the blatant forms of a coup to get rid of a center-left leader to the more subtle forms like the type of coup that took place in Paraguay and now the a lot of the manipulation that's forcing Dilma Rousseff out of office yep. that it's become highly questionable how representative representative democracy is. People are becoming really disillusioned with elections as any kind of a form of, of the exercise of democracy, both because there's so much corruption within the parties, there's so much outside intervention from the United States, and there's so much manipulation that takes place. In Mexico, in the case of Peña Nieto, we have the evidence of the manipulation of the press. We have evidence of the manipulation of the elections themselves. And then we have a situation where after 71 years of authoritarian rule, people still don't really have a concept that the vote is an expression of, of citizenship. And poverty is still so widespread and, and so acutely felt by families throughout the country that they figure it's a good deal to sell their vote for, for food for a week. 
And so vote selling is also a huge problem within the elections. And between all of this, you know, how much any kind of election is going to be really an expression of popular will is highly questionable. And when you take into account the fact that we've had two major frauds that changed the results of election Mm -hmm. and put into power individuals from the right wing that did not win the election in the case of Carlos Salinas and the case of Felipe Calderon since 1988, and these are six-year terms, you know, you're looking at a country that's been governed illegitimately a major part of the past uh, a couple decades. That's right. And and on top of that, Mexico is in, in many ways the centerpiece of the U.S. strategy for hammering through the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That Mexico is supposed to be, as you mentioned earlier, almost like, you know, the the, the representative of the United States, uh, you know, the ambassador for the United States to the rest of Latin America. And in selling the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Mexico is one of the most uh, keen and eager uh signatories to the TPP and obviously there is no you know there's no coincidence there that the government in place is so amenable to the interests of Wall Street and Washington yes they're working hard to back up the United States on the TPP despite the fact that now we have an election in the United States where supposedly both candidates um, are saying that they're against it. Yeah, My right. feeling is that Hillary Clinton will flip as soon as she can. Of course. Because she has a long history of supporting free trade agreements, but <laughs> NAFTA always comes up as a negative in presidential campaigns, so you'll hear whatever you know, whatever they think. She called think. it she called it the gold standard of trade deals in 2012. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's so now it's kind of taking a low profile, but Mexico is there to back it up, and the results from Mexico have been disastrous. What the TPP is is essentially uh, uh, NAFTA plus yep. for Mexico that worsens the terms of NAFTA itself, and the terms of NAFTA itself are what are, have displaced 3 million small farmers, what have eliminated in large part the uh, domestic industry and small and medium-sized sized companies have taken a tremendous blow. Uh, what has led to the fact that young people going into the labor market cannot find jobs, and if they do find jobs, they have to work in the informal economy, which is in no job security, low salaries, poor working conditions. You know, the worst that you can have in terms in terms of working conditions, and it's what led to half a million people a year migrating to the United States. Now that level has gone down, but um, but it continues to be a major problem. And then the conditions that they face when they migrate, first there's a U.S. policy that pushes them out of their homes when they don't necessarily want to leave. You know, people want to stay with their families in general. There are people all over the world want to stay with their families. So it forces them out of their homes. Then they get to the border, and there's another policy that turns them into criminals and oftentimes throws them in private prisons, another huge business. You know, so, so, so they're, they're in this cycle of, of being pushed around globally uh, where uh, there's there's no choice for the individuals and these series of U.S. policies are making life absolutely impossible. They're separating families. 
it's a it's a real it's a real terrible situation and people don't realize how one policy is feeding into the other and the and the extreme unfairness of it all yeah that that's absolutely right and where nafta made um Mexico sort of a dumping ground for for U.S. Uh, commodities, for U.S. agricultural products and things like that. The TPP will only accelerate that process, thereby making Mexico not just a dumping ground for U.S. goods, but also for cheap textiles from Southeast Asia and for all sorts of other, uh, you know, commodities and other consumer goods that will be dumped into the Mexican market, displacing any uh, uh, domestic production but also, of course, creating economic, uh, you know, economic um, aftershocks from that that will be felt for decades. It's hard to believe that the lessons of NAFTA have not been learned. And again, I think we're looking at a lot of media manipulation um, and, and a lot of imposition in terms of how this thing has taken place. As we know, there was complete and utter lack of transparency during the negotiation process, and it's hard to get people to even to pay attention to something like that, although it does come up more in the election period. But for Mexico has become the example of the negative results of free trade model on a developing country. So the idea that these other developing countries are, are leaping in to this uh, the to the TPP, which is an extension of that NAFTA model, is almost hard to to believe unless you look at how undemocratic most of our countries are at the root, because the political elite and clearly the economic elite, and that means the national economic business community, especially those that have international ties and especially with ties to the U.S. market, is pushing this, and they and the power distribution is so top-heavy in that sense that they're able to get it through governments, even though the vast majority of the people in these nations would be negatively impacted. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and again, the other the other element of it is, of course, cutting off any opportunities that they might want to entertain for looking at China as a potential alternative to the United States as a uh, economic partner. I think that that's one of the central uh, focuses, you know, one of the central ideas behind the Trans-Pacific Partnership is consolidating U.S. economic hegemony over Latin America and the Asia-Pacific space and and uh, preventing China from becoming the partner that, say, it has become for Venezuela or that it has become for uh, Nicaragua with the potential canal there. You know, so it is sort of a forward-looking kind of free trade deal that cuts off that avenue of development to Latin American countries. Yes, there's definitely that geopolitical game going on. And China has made huge inroads in economic dealings, especially for raw materials, which has not necessarily been good for South American and Central American countries. But they have made huge inroads, and that does seem to be part something, it is something that the United States government wants to block uh, and is a major motivation behind the TPP. Exactly. And, and that, you know, return to U.S. US hegemony, both economic and political and military in the region, um, is is uh, uh, a threat to many countries. It's something that men, the center left governments were 
were very consciously working to to minimize by forming south south ties uh by breaking off with a lot of the dependency that there historically has been to the U.S. economy and to the U.S. government. Uh, now the future is uncertain in that regard, and the TPP would definitely be a step backwards in terms of the independence of Latin America from U.S. hegemony. Exactly right. Well, we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately. We could go on for many hours on these subjects, but uh, you, you definitely need to follow Laura's work. Again, Laura Carlson is the director of the Americas Program at the Center for International Policy, the website CIPAmericas.org, on Twitter, at CIPAmericas. Follow her work. Hopefully, we can have her back on in the not-too-distant future. Laura Carlson, thanks again for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you. Always a pleasure.